Well, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're reading this as context to our study. We're going to be looking today at 1 Samuel chapter 7. And later in our service, we'll be referring to this chapter because here in this chapter, we're in the context of the judges. And Samuel has just become a prophet over the whole of Israel and He is bringing the word of the Lord to all Israel. But Israel is strayed from God. She's under the covenant judgment of God, as we're going to read in this chapter. Why? Because she's not worshipping him. She's not obeying the law that was being given to to them by God. They were in covenant with God, remember. And so when they broke that covenant... They no longer experienced the covenant blessings, but they experienced the covenant curses. And one of those covenant curses was that they wouldn't win their battles when they went out to war. And that's what we find in this chapter. They go out and they fight against the Philistines. And they lose because they are strayed from the Lord. We're reading the first 11 verses together. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Apek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came up, To the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, The Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians of every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage. And be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. Let's turn through to chapter 7 now. 
chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. So in the interim, what's happened? Well, at the end of chapter 4, the news comes back to Shiloh, the capital city at that time of Israel, and news spreads about how the ark of the Lord has departed. And the people were fearful because they saw the ark as God had established, was a symbol of God's presence among his people. And so they said of how the glory of God had departed from Israel. Chapter 5, the ark goes to Philistia. And God brings plagues upon them as they uh, mock him with their handling of the ark. Then by chapter 6, they've had enough. They don't want the ark anymore. So they decide to put it on a cart and send it on its way. And God miraculously brings these cows that carry this, or that pull this cart with the cat, the ark on it, back to Israel. And so when Israel come, some of the men stared upon the ark in chapter 6. And they were staring at God because the ark resembled God's presence. And so God has to vindicate his holiness and so strikes down men of, Ash, um, of Beth Shemesh. And at the end of chapter 6, and Israel gets a bit scared now. And so they don't want to respond to God as they should. And so they push away the ark and they let it reside in this place called Kirath-Jerim. And so that's where we pick up the story now. In chapter 7, verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kirath-Jerim, a long time passed some 20 years and then all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord and Samuel said to all the house of Israel if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water, and they poured it before the Lord, and they fasted that day. And said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that, that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the, people said, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but... The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen 
and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So then the, so the Philistines were subdued, and they did not enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered uh, the t- their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. Amen. In the midst of the pandemic, Christians have asked the question, will these events bring revival to the church and awakening in our land? Different articles have been written and surveys have been completed and analysed, which has brought forth some positive and encouraging news for the church. These Um, Things uh, suggest that record numbers of people have been listening to online services or ministry on the Lord's Day. That people have been downloading Bible apps off uh, onto their phones and tablets in record numbers during the pandemic. And that there's even been an increase of purchased paper copies of the Bible. Scripture and history exemplify to us that to have national awakening, awakening, there must first be reform within the church. And the revival of lives that are already in the church before it can break out into society. This is confirmed in the examples of Josiah, Hezekiah and Nehemiah, each in their respective days. And what we even know of our own providence and history here within Northern Ireland, what we've witnessed or read of in past days. It may seem somewhat strange, though, that awakening must first begin with reformation within the church. Surely the church, which is Christ's bride, which are saved by grace through faith, don't need any reform. Well, if we honestly look at ourselves and examine our lives, we must admit that we're not perfect. We, we, we aren't where we could and perhaps maybe should be within our walk with God. We can become complacent in areas of our lives or perhaps even in the whole of our life. In essence, there's always a need for reformation and we're not beyond that individually and neither is the church. Today we're going to look at this passage, 1 Samuel chapter 7, And we're going to study it under the title, Transformation in Israel. And we're going to reflect on this central theme in the passage under four headings. But it's important stuff that we're going to learn here from God's word. And so let's firstly note, intense preparation is required for transformation. Intense preparation is required for transformation. Verse 2 of chapter 7 moves the history of Israel forward 20 years. And what's happened during that time? 
Well, for Israel, the dramatic events of chapter 6, when the ark was miraculously returned to them and God vindicated his holiness, appears to have had no lasting impact on, the, on their lives. They've gotten rid of the ark and they've sent it off to Kirath Jerem. And verse 3 suggests that they've just continued to live as they had been before. They've been worshipping the Astros, the foreign gods. They've strayed and they haven't been directing their hearts to the Lord. They haven't been serving him alone. They've actually been quite comfortable living under the ruling of the Philistines. What's, been, what's Samuel been, been doing in these past 20 years? The prophet of Israel. Well, if you remember back in chapter 3, verse 20, the writer notes that Samuel was known to be a preacher of God's word to the whole of Israel and one who prays on their behalf. He was their mediator because the priesthood had been so corrupt that God had removed it and so Samuel took the interim place. Well, back here in chapter 7, verse 3, we hear the application of Samuel's preaching If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then. His call for repentance can only come after the preaching of the word. Because an individual cannot repent until they know what they're to repent from. Further proof of Samuel's activities come from the previous verse. Verse 2. Some twenty years and then all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This lamenting here, this cry, is very different to the cries of Israel which they made to God on previous occasions. Remember the book of Judges? And that cycle that we see in the book of Judges of how Israel were living in the land and then they sinned. So then God sent and raised up um, a nation to be his instrument of judgment. And then after a while, they realized that this wasn't where they were to be. And so under the pain of of the ruling of the foreign nation, they cried out to God. And that was a cry of pain from the physical circumstances. But here in chapter 7, verse 2, the lament here isn't a cry from the physical circumstances, but it's a cry and a wail with tears over sin. It's completely different to the cries that they had made in past days. And so we will come and see this cry for deliverance in verse 9 when the Philistines were coming up the mountain of Mizpah. But here Israel is showing remorse for sin. And that also can't come without the exposure to God's word. Like the lamp that Professor Mackay has on the lectern so he can see his notes each Lord's day. It's turned on so he can see what he's reading. Like the word when we turn on, when we look and have the Word of God, it exposes the sin within our lives. We only get to see the result of what had been probably, no doubt, 20 years of hard and intense preparation done by Samuel. And what did this intense preparation involve? Well, it involved him going to the people and preaching the Word, and then going home and praying for fruit day by day. And so he had a task no different than the apostles in the New Testament. We will give ourselves to prayer and the preaching of the word.
It stresses to us the importance of the preached word for salvation, does it not? Remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 10, verse 17? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We can't expect people to be saved unless the word of God is preached and taught to them. And primarily this is done on the Lord's Day, which is why it's the pinnacle and the the highlight of the week. And it's why we gather on the Lord's Day also to sit under the word. With this, after we've sat under the word of the Lord's Day, we go out as many preachers into the world during the week. Preachers with a small p, perhaps, you could say. And we go into the world and through our words and our deeds, we declare the word as we live before a watching world. And so therefore it's really important, it's pertinent that we are out in the world meeting those that who we live and work here in the centre of Belfast, building friendships with our neighbours in the communities that we live, visibly and physically amongst sinners like our Saviour Christ Jesus was, but with the intention to proclaim the word like he did. One is also to note here how long it took before Samuel saw fruit for his labour. Twenty years. Twenty years of hard graft work. And perhaps he saw the sporadic conversion throughout those twenty years. But no doubt, from a human perspective, there was times where the work felt monotonous. As he left Dan in the north, that northern tip, and he started his journey back down to preach through Israel, to go to the south. He maybe wondered, why? What's happening? There's nothing happening here. Samuel had to be committed to the long haul. And we are ministering also in a time of intense preparation, both in reforming our own hearts and proclaiming the good news to the lost souls in our community. And so we're to take encouragement from Samuel. And Paul brings similar words of encouragement in the New Testament from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so what does he tell the brothers then? So be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because your labor is not in vain. Notice also who Samuel speaks to in verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel. He preaches indiscriminately. And I mean that he calls everyone to repent. And we are to do likewise. We can't pick or choose who we want to share the gospel with. I'll share it with them, but I won't share it with them. We must share it with all people that come. we come in contact with. And everybody must respond to the word, either by accepting it or rejecting it. So, intense preparations required for transformation in Israel. Let's secondly note a sincere confession. A sincere confession. Samuel notices After these 20 years, the people begin to lament over their sin. 
They're moved with sorrow for their sin. They're crying, they're weeping over it, that they're disobeying their Lord, that they've broken the commandments that Moses gave their forefathers. But remorse isn't enough. Feeling sorry for sin isn't enough. It's often the response that's caused by knowledge of it through the word. But it can't stop there. There must be a response by the will. And so Samuel commands it in verse 3. Repent. Repent. And he calls them to return to the Lord. Returning from the false gods and that life which went with it. He commands them to put those gods away. And it's not a suggestion that you should consider doing this here if you're going to return to the Lord. But it's if you're going to return to the Lord, you must put away every false god. And they're gone for good. It's like the gardener who got out at the beginning of the season in February, March. And they had to remove the weeds that had overgrown the flower bed through the winter month. And tidy everything up before they could plant in the new sucklings. Because if they didn't, the new sucklings would choke and die among among the overgrowth. The same must happen in the individual's life. Everything of the old must be rooted up. And then the new must be actively placed in instead. And so that's why Samuel goes on to say, if you're returning then you also have to direct your hearts. You have to put away, but also direct your hearts to the Lord. This putting away entailed separateness from the previous life. Israel not only had to give up the false gods, but also the ungodly living that went with the false gods. So it wasn't that they were just not to stop going to the temples of Astroth, but they were to also stop those practices, that way of life that they were living within their homes, outside of the worship in the temples, they were to cease from doing also. They had to be separate from the fashionable practices of those who lived around them in Cana. They had to leave the sensual and the carnal for the transformation by the spiritual. This was a call for radical change in their lives. And when we put our faith in Christ Jesus, the call is the same for us that we're to put off and to put on. Paul uses that imagery in Colossians chapter 3. But turning away from something means that you turn to something else. And so Samuel says in verse 3, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Israel were to have wholehearted commitment to him alone. Their hearts were to have no other want, no other desire. They were to serve him only, be subject to him alone, be servants of no one else but God. Israel were to lament or was lamenting over her sin when it was exposed. And so we must also ask ourselves the question, are we moved to grief over our sins? Does your wickedness stir your emotions? 
Does your breaking of God's law affect you? When the word is preached and your sin is exposed under the pure light of God's word, what's your response? Are you hard and cold to it? Do you reject it and seek to ignore it? Because if you're there, you need a spiritual transformation of the heart. Or are you moved to grief that you've disobeyed your Father in heaven, that you've offended him, that you've hurt him? It's fitting for us as believers to have remorse over our sins as we confess it in prayer. But we're not to stay there. Remember Psalm 30 verse 11. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed me, you've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. There is that joy which should come when we express our experience salvation. That joy of the spirit that Paul talks of in Galatians. Because of our new identity and our reconciled relationship with God. And because of our eternal destiny. This message which Samuel preaches was in essence the gospel. The same gospel preached in the New Testament. The same gospel that's preached today. Paul writes in Thessalonians 1 verses 9 and 10. About how they and what their experience was. How they turned to God from idols and served the living and true God. Putting their trust in Christ, whom he raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Unbeliever, this passage speaks to your greatest need that we're studying here this morning. One aspect of that true repentance is, yes, remorse for sin, stirred in our minds by the knowledge of God's word, or knowledge given by God's word. You, like Israel, need to turn and hear and respond to Samuel's call of uh, verse 3. You must turn to God and put away all other gods, all other loves, all all other desires, and place him first in your life, putting your faith in Christ Jesus, directing your heart to him and to serve him being delivered from the wrath to come. Have you done that, unbeliever? Believer, do you need to do that again because you've backslidden? Because there hasn't been that radical break with the old, that separation that Samuel calls Israel to have, that cutting away, that putting off? Have you been back after the sensual pleasures, the temporal things of the world? Do you need to return again to the Lord with all your heart? Perhaps you're thinking, I am so sinful. I'm so disobedient. How could God save me? Well, if we were to read the first seven chapters entirely uh, this morning, which we didn't have time to do, We'd have seen of the immense depravity of sin that Israel, God's chosen people, had delved into. Yet for them, return was possible. God is willing to forgive. He is willing and able to forgive the backslider, the habitual sinner, and the worst of sinners. 
And that's what Samuel says in verse 3. He will deliver you if you turn away and direct your heart and serve him only. You will be saved from not only the earthly enemy, but from God's wrath to come. And it's all accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Samuel observes that Israel's individual repentance is genuine. So he moves to consolidate it with national repentance because there is national sin and corporate guilt for communal sin committed by the people of God. And so in verse 5, Samuel commands them to gather at Mizpah. At that time, it was one of the places that they convened for in national emergencies. And Samuel calls them there to make covenant renewal. On this day of national confession, verse 6, they're pouring out water, as we read in verse 6, and they're fasting. And they're two actions of self-denial, of the necessities of life, uh, to confess sin. And their actions emphasize that they were serious about it, that this wasn't half-hearted, but they were meaning, and, or they were genuine about what they were doing. The pouring out of water had a second meaning to it. Jeremiah speaks of it in Lamentations 2 verse 19 when he says, Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. It reflects that unrestrained and heartfelt confession of sin, holding on to none of your sins, but confessing them all to the Lord. It's going back to that idea of verse 3 where he said that they were to hold on to nothing of the gods or the lifestyle. It's that radical break. And so they're confessing every sin to the Lord. Their actions match their words here. Verse 6, we have sinned against the Lord. Sin is primarily and firstly against the Lord. And it's him who we have offended by our actions. These verses stress to us the seriousness of sin and our confession of it should not be lax, should not be thoughtless or meaningless phrases within our prayers. Sin is serious and we need to be serious about our confession of it. This will be daily and personal for us as we um, have worship with God ourselves in our homes individually. But at times there is a need for corporate confession of sin when the body has sinned against the Lord. There's times when a nation or even a church must come together and confess together before God or else she'll be estranged from God because of that barrier that sin poses between her and God. Let's thirdly note a critical test. A critical test. Very often the new believer or the repentant believer will experience a critical test which will probe the validity of their confession. To test whether it's genuine or not. The first test Israel faces is the very test which Israel had failed in chapter 4. What will happen this time? They're back at battle against Israel. How are they going to do things this time round? Well, as we read, it's a total reversal. Unlike chapter 4, 
when Israel were presumptuous of their assumed victory over Philistia, this time they are reliant on God. They expect the same outcome they want delivered and that they had, and that same outcome that they desired in chapter 4, but they this time don't do it on their own terms. Yes, they're afraid. In verse 7, but verse 8, the people of Israel, who do they go to? Samuel. Samuel, whom they had ignored last time when they'd been defeated by the Lord. They go to Samuel and they say, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They were engaged in prayer rather than in chapter 4 where they sought to manipulate God and do it in their own strength and not seek in prayer of him rather than trying to do it of themselves. Here they're asking God's mediator to pray for them. And they implore Samuel not to stop praying, not to cease from praying until God delivers them. That's the emphasis in the language. Samuel approaches God in the right way. Verse 9, he takes a nursing lamb, recognizing that he's still a sinner and blood must be shed for the remission of sin. And so he takes a sign and the symbol that God has given them, which points forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. And he offers the whole burnt offering, that offering for sin to the Lord. And the burnt offering is accepted. That lamb without blemish, that took their place and the blood was poured out for them, pointing to Christ and to his sacrifice, through whom they would have forgiveness for their sins. What a contrast to chapter 4, verse 3, where here, now, the Philistines are defeated by the Lord, where in chapter 4, verse 3, Israel were defeated by God. Here, God keeps his promise to his covenant people who are faithful unto him. He keeps his promises that he made with their forefathers and as Samuel had declared in verse 3 that he will deliver you from the Philistines. And so when we face those testing circumstances to prove the validity, new believer, of your profession of faith, of believer again as you profess faith again and confess sin and seek to live each day, how will you respond to the testing circumstances? Will you quit and throw in the towel? Will you rely on your own strength like Israel in chapter 4 and then experience the consequences that Israel experienced in chapter 4? Or will you, like Israel in chapter 7, seek and trust the Lord? Let's finally see after the critical test, ongoing fruitfulness. Ongoing fruitfulness. After Israel mops up the battlefield, Samuel goes on to memorialize the event. He sets up a stone to remind them and every future generation that passed between these two points of the events that had happened that day. If you were out yesterday around 2 p.m., you'd have seen the red arrows fly 
up the lock and across Belfast and beyond. Our society has been marking victory in Japan. And there's been all sorts of services of remembrance. We've had the red arrows yesterday. There have been wreaths that have been played. There's been the last post played. All to remember the sacrifice of those brave men and women who fought for our freedom. And after the war, we, can, we don't have to go very far before we find these monuments that are set up to remind us the generation that never had to lift the gun during that battle or drive the tanks during those battles of, uh, in the Second World War, that we shouldn't forget their sacrifice for our freedom. And Samuel's seeking to do a similar thing in this chapter as he sets up this stone. It was to stir within them thanksgiving and to supply them with confidence in God for the future. As God had helped them up to this point, he will continue to do for his covenant faithful people in the future. One preacher puts it this way, as he seeks to apply it to us. Christians don't live in the past, but we do live out of the past. We remember how God has proved his faithfulness and his love, and thus we hope to a new, we hope anew to arrive safely at home. Israel experiences further victory over the Philistines. And then there is a period of peace. What needed to happen during this time in their spiritual walk with the Lord? Could they sit back and enjoy life with this new territory that they had regained again um, uh, from Ekron to Gath? Those cities that they had regained and the territory around them? No, no. In reality, the work had only begun for them. And it had only begun for Samuel as they had covenant renewal. They needed to press on. Think back to my gardening analogy. Remember the gardener who gets out and he has the garden looking all well by the time it comes the 1st of March. And the flowers are coming up nicely. There's not a weed in sight. The lawn has the stripes going each direction. It looks wonderful. He can't just sit in his conservatory looking out at his garden for the rest of the summer saying, look at that garden. Because within a week's time, what's going to appear in the flower bed? Weeds. And the daisies are going to appear in the lawn if he doesn't keep weeding it out. He can't leave it now. He has to continue to maintain it. And it required the same for Samuel to continue to give himself faithfully to ministry of the word and to prayer in seeking the rest of Israel. Yes, there's been national uh, covenant renewal, but there were still people within Israel who were not believers and he had to go and seek them out. He had to seek out those who were believers to continue to teach them from God's word to continue to die to sin. He had to go after those who went wandering off and got lost along the path. That's what Samuel's task was. And elders and pastors, that's your same task. 
It also required of Israel to continue to be responsive to the word or else the gospel, as we would say, would be lost in a generation. And if you were to read into chapter 8, that's what we would find to be the case. That the gospel is lost within the generation in Israel. And when the next generation arises in chapter 8, they forget the Lord again. So pastors and elders, are you giving yourself to the ministry of the word and prayer? In seeking those in your congregation to further die to remaining sin? In going after the wandering believer who is strayed? And in reaching out and leading by example of the reaching out to the unbelieving community around the church and around where you live. Members, are you responding to God's word as it's preached each Lord's Day? Do you meditate upon it throughout the Lord's Day? Do you pray it into your life when you leave the building throughout the week Seeking to confess that sin and seeking the help of the Holy Spirit to be able to walk in response to the words that your pastors preach to you. Are you seeking by God's grace and His Spirit to respond? Or are you going out of here suppressing it, ignoring it, or even just forgetting it once you leave worship? Really the question is, are you impacted by the preaching of the word? Is it enthusing you? Is it energizing you to the acts of faith and love, of obedience, of service and outreach? If it's not, why not? Have you grown stale? Have you hardened your heart against the Lord? Are you not in union with Christ to start off with? Transformation in Israel came after intense preparation. And there had to be that sincere confession of sin which was proven in the critical test. And finally, there was that need of ongoing faithfulness to maintain her state. Amen.